when you look at the coaching profession, when you look at the real coaching profession, the coaching profession is about influence. It's about relationships. It's about impact. It's about those things. That's what the real coaching profession is. Welcome to Holding Court, presented by the Ohio High School Basketball Coaches Association. Join hosts Adam Hall and Walt Serrato as they sit down with some of the biggest names in Ohio high school basketball and beyond. This show and all of our shows are available to listen to completely free anywhere that you can find podcasts. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Let's get to it. Hello, and welcome to the Holding Court Podcast. It's Adam Hall here with my co-host, Walt Serrato, and tonight we are excited to be joined by Coach Tom Barrick. Coach Barrick has most recently served as the president of the National High School Basketball Coaches Association. Prior to that, he served as the executive director and president of the Ohio High School Basketball Coaches Association. Tom has spent 33 years as a high school basketball coach in Ohio and Kentucky, compiling a record of 505 and 265. His teams have won 12 league championships, 17 sectional championships, eight district championships, and three regional championships. Coach, thank you for coming on tonight, and welcome to the Holding Court Podcast. Thanks, guys. Uh, Walt, Adam, I appreciate having the opportunity to be on. Uh, really looking forward to this evening. I've had an opportunity to listen to the guys before us, and it's a great service that uh, you guys are doing for the Ohio Basketball Coaches Association. So I don't know if I can live up to the uh, guys uh, before myself, but truly appreciate the opportunity to be on. Well, Coach, let's jump right into it. Um, I'd like to go back to those playing days at Riverview High School. Um, and for those of our listeners who don't know where Riverview High School is located, it's located in Warsaw, Ohio, Coshocton County. Uh, but you had the opportunity to play for one of the most successful coaches in Ohio high school basketball history in Walter Harrop Jr. And I was wondering if you could share a little bit about that experience as a player. What was it like playing for Coach Harrop? And then as you started your coaching career, uh, what did you take away from that experience and try to emulate in your own program? Well, you know, you're exactly right when you say one of the most successful coaches. Uh, obviously, Coach is a Hall of Fame coach. He's in our Hall of Fame. Uh, his father uh, is in the Ohio Basketball Hall of Fame. He's a legendary coach in, in his own rights. Uh, so I had the opportunity to play in, in a great time and in, uh, in a great program. And, you know, for the people that are a little aware of where Warsaw is and where Coshocton County, we review is right now, you know, we, we know that they fell on some hard times. Uh, some of the, the structure of their school has changed a lot. But, you know, it, it, at that time when I was coming through, Riverview was probably one of the premier programs at that time. And having the opportunity to play for Coach uh, Harrop, we won the state championship. I was actually in seventh grade when Riverview won the state championship in 75. Uh, in, in 76, they turned around and went undefeated and was number one in the state. Uh, in 78, uh, led by Scott Ehrenholt who's the uh, former head coach at Zanesville. Scott was a senior when I was a sophomore. They was a top five program uh, again in 78, 82. I believe they made it back to, uh, it was after I had graduated, made it back to, I think the Elite Eight, Sweet 16 or Elite Eight in, in uh, AA basketball at that time. So, you know, it, it, was a, uh, it was a great time to be a player. To be honest, I was a very average high school basketball player, probably a better football player and baseball player 
than I was a basketball player. But I was a, a loved to compete. Was a competitor, uh, three sport athlete. So, and that was one of the things about Coach Hare, his competitiveness. It was a premium on competing uh, night in and night out. And that's probably the only thing that saved me as a basketball player was being able to compete. The skill level probably wasn't as great as a lot of those other guys um, that I uh, competed with or played with. Um, but uh, having the opportunity and, you know, one of the, the best things that I was able to take away from, from Coach in that time was just his preparation. You know, Coach had things down. And as I said, he, he was a great competitor himself. Uh, everything in that program was based off of uh, competitiveness. And uh, in order to be a great competitor, you have to, to be very prepared. And that was one of the things, you know, I, I can still remember uh, clear up to my last couple of years, uh, the notebook that I had uh, received from Coach Harrop and, and the expectations as a player. And, you know, I revamped those things a couple of times throughout my career, uh, that notebook, and, and I used that with my players throughout. So. It was really, uh, it was really an honor uh, to get a chance to, to play at that time uh, and to play, you know, with a hall for a hall of fame coach. Coach, we were talking a little bit uh, before we got on air here about you having the opportunity to grow up and play and eventually coach in what you call the, the golden age of East Central Ohio basketball. Uh, can you talk about some of the programs, uh, and some of the coaches that you got to play against and coach against? You know, when we start talking about East Central Ohio basketball and, and today, you know, you, you see Highland still having a great run in, the, in their girls programs. But, you know, when I was coming through, it was part of the reason that developed me and my passion for coaching was everything that was going on in East Central Ohio. When I say that, I'm talking about Coshocton County and Holmes County and Tuscarawas County, uh, Guernsey County and so forth. Uh, that area right there. Uh, in the mid-70s into the mid to late 80s uh, was a period. And as I said, I graduated, I actually graduated in 80 uh, and then started coaching back in that area uh, in about 86. But, you know, when you start talking about that era, you know, you're talking about Jack Van Reith at West Holmes uh, as a boys coach and then went over to the girls coach, talking about Charlie Huggins at Indian Valley South. You're talking about Walt Hare up at, at Riverview. You're talking about Richie Longerberger, um, who was at Tri-Valley. They won the state, you know, uh, actually Jack Van Reith had won the state in 62 with the Dresden Jayhawks, and, and Richie backed it up in 63 with a state championship. And uh, Richie was coaching at Tri-Valley when I was coming through. And it wasn't just the coaches. You know, I was fortunate at that time that the players that I got to see that I got to idolize. You know, you had Dave uh, Orlinger, who graduated from um, Ridgewood. And I believe, uh, I think he graduated in maybe 77, went on to play at the University of Pittsburgh, was a head basketball coach at Carrollton, and then on to Avon Lake. You know, you had other players. You had Davy Jones at, uh, at Jewett Side. You had Larry Huggins at Indian Valley. You had Dave Ziegler at Coshocton High School that went on and had a great career at uh, Kent State. So not only was it the great programs that I got a chance to see, but I got to see all these great players and went on and had great college careers as well. So when I say it was kind of the golden air uh, of that East Central Ohio, it wasn't just the great basketball programs. And, and as we know, great players make great basketball players 
programs and uh, great coaches do as well. So it was a great time. And it was part of what really gave me my passion uh, for the game of basketball and having the opportunity to just follow those. My family was very, my mother was very instrumental in uh, seeing that we got the basketball games. We never missed a basketball game. Of course, I would never admit this to my teachers, but my mother would get us out of school early and we would stand in line uh, just to make sure that we got in the gym at that time. So, you know, it was a great time. And one of the things that I think I, one of the biggest things that I took away from that period and that experience was the fact that I got a chance to see at a very early age as a player and as a young coach, the level that you had to get your program to, to be great. Uh, you know, when you look at, you know, those programs, you know, Charlie Huggins going against Terry Leggett at Buckeye Trail, they were number, they actually were number one and number two in the state in 1980 the year I graduated. They were playing in the sectional. Number one and number two in the because it was a draw. It was a pill draw at the time. And Terry Leggett and Charlie Huggins going at it in a sectional game. You know, what a what a privilege uh, that was for us. So the opportunity to just see the level that you had to get to to be great. Uh, was an experience that I think a lot of other people may not have had a chance to do that I was lucky that I was able to do. And, and I'm sure as time's gone on and you've been able to look back and reflect, maybe when you were in it, you didn't quite appreciate, wow, look at some of these players I'm going up against. Look at some of these coaches I'm rubbing elbows with. There's no question about that. Um, you know, you know, at the time you get so wrapped up being the young coach and trying to do everything that you really don't have any idea the magnitude of, you know, what's happening right there. But when you look back, it's like, wow, what an experience. Um, you know, it, 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 uh, it truly was. And, and the night that I had the opportunity to get into the Hall of Fame, I kept alluding and everybody kind of teased me. I kept alluding to the fact how lucky I was in my coaching career. But I was truly lucky. I mean, you know, to have an opportunity to grow up in that environment uh, and to see those things it wasn't the luck that we as coaches like to say where preparation meets opportunity. It's just being in the right spot at the right time. So I was lucky. Going up against the, these Hall of Famers and these high-level programs on a nightly basis, how did that make you a better coach? What did you take from them? Can you remember any specifics? Or I know you well, alluded to the preparation, but go you know, and speak the, to that. You know, actually, you know, the funny part about it is that actually my first varsity win come against Perry Reese when he was at Highland. Uh, little people know that uh, Perry had come off of a uh, Final Four appearance at uh, Dayton early on in his career. Actually, I was a USIO, and uh, Perry had graduated the majority of his kids, so he was in a kind of a rebuilding year after that Final Four. And uh, for the people that may have known the historical uh, significance of the USIO gym, we had them at home. And uh, it was a tremendous home court advantage. Uh, so we were able to win that game. And, of course, you, at the time, you know, it was a great win for us. You know, hey, they were Final Four regional champs last year and stuff. But I don't think, uh, again, as you alluded to, you don't understand really uh, the significance of, you know, wins like that uh, in your career. But, you know, when you start looking at playing against those kind of programs, you know, obviously – it's, it's a challenge in the sense that they're the, they're the cream of the crop. 
and when you're trying to develop a program, those are tough challenges. But it also gives your kids an opportunity to actually see what they need to do, where they need to get, uh, where they are in the whole process of developing that championship mentality. So uh, we took a lot of learning, uh, you know, a lot of bumps in the road. Uh, but uh, to play against those guys in hindsight uh, was was truly an honor to play against those kind of programs. It really was. So, Coach, you started your career as a JV coach. And what I don't think a lot of people know is who you coached under. And you started your career at Fort Fry, coached under the legend Dan Litke, who, once again, legend in Eastern Ohio basketball, still coaching today. Uh, I'm pretty sure he's surpassed the 700 win mark. What did you take away from that experience learning under Coach Litke, which I believe was his first head coaching job that you then used at Jewett Sio your first season? Well, it was. And uh, and that's a little known fact uh, that a lot of people don't know. You know, obviously Dan's first year as a head coach, uh, we went both went to Rio Grande. We knew each other prior to uh, this coaching assignment. And Dan had uh, taught and coached there uh, as an assistant uh, the year prior to me getting a teaching job there. I got a teaching job. Probably a lot of it had to do with the fact that uh, Dan was there and knew me and gave me the opportunity to uh, be his JV coach. I'm not sure how good a JV coach I was because, you know, the JV coaches in today's society are supposed to be that uh, bridge between the player and the um, coach, head coach. I I don't know if I was necessarily uh, a good bridge, but, you know, the opportunity to work with Dan uh, was, again, something that I was very, very fortunate to do. Lucky in the sense that I got a teaching job, lucky in the sense that Dan trusted me enough. Uh, to be his JV coach. Probably the greatest thing that I took away from that experience, I was only there one year before I took the uh, challenge of wounded Jutsayo, but was just the energy that it takes to try to start a basketball program. Little known fact is that, uh, you know, Fort Fry was a tough job prior to Dan uh, getting that job. You know, a lot of people look at Fort Fry now and think it, you know, Fort Fry, they had great basketball and, you know, they've been strong traditionally. Well, prior to Dan, they were not. Uh, Dan is the one that built that tradition and continued that. Now he's obviously coaching the girls. But having the opportunity to work with Dan that year uh, and just seeing everything that went into trying to build a program, a championship program, just the level that you have to be all in to do it and to do it right. Dan was energetic. We were both in our mid-20s. We were both single. Uh, and we both had the opportunities to be all in at that time. And, and uh, Dan giving me an opportunity to learn as he was uh, going into that experience. It was, uh, again, something that I feel very fortunate that happened. And, you know, in order to have a long career at the high school level, you got to have a lot of luck. And it was a, an opportunity that I got that, that uh, was very positive for me. So, Coach, then you move on to Jewett Sion. I really, uh, I was looking forward to asking you this next question because we, we share kind of a kindred spirit when it comes to this. First few years there didn't quite exactly go as planned, didn't experience the kind of success that you were hoping for. That can be deflating. Uh, it can take away some of your passion for the game. I, I know myself personally, my first head coaching experience, 
uh, and the girls at Newcomerstown. We won two games in two years. And I think I was in a situation similar to you. Yes. We were, I was young. I was, I was single. I was eager. And I, I thought I had all, I was going to be the one to turn it around. Uh, sounds like maybe a little bit of a similar situation to what you have. Um, what advice would you give? You know, because this is something I, I, we talk to a lot of successful coaches and you by all means are that, but you've seen the other side. There, there's a loss for every win, right? What advice would you give to coaches, not just in the state of Ohio, to anyone listening that are maybe going through that rebuild or maybe the cupboard's not, you know, quite as replenished as you'd like it to be? What advice would you give to coaches going through that? Well, coach, you know, I appreciate that. And I appreciate the fact that uh, you're exactly right. Uh, our first couple of years, we were not competitive. Uh, we didn't win ball games. We lost and, and we did not. Uh, we were not competitive. You know, we were getting beat 15, 20, 30 points in games. And, you know, we took over a program and it was one of those deals where a lot of people had uh, said, you know, you may want to rethink this. Uh, of course, as you alluded to, I was the guy uh, that was going to turn around. Uh, I was the guy that could work hard enough to get those things done. But I will be the first to admit, the first couple of years, I didn't understand coaching. And we struggled with players and we struggled with all the things that went along with having been a down program for a few years. Attitudes, numbers, uh, facilities, equipment, all those things. But the biggest problem, I think, that looking back at the time was the fact that I thought coaching was telling kids what to do and suggesting, hey, run this offense and we're going to run this and we're going to do that. And, you know, one of the stories that I will tell you that very few people know, maybe my wife might be the only person that knows, but after the 88 uh, season, we had had two years where we were not competitive. I think we won three ball games in those two years. And we were not competitive. Uh, I literally wrote Bobby Knight at Indiana. And I said, uh, is there any GA positions available? I'd be interested in taking the GA position. He was kind and wrote back and said that, you know, our GA positions are saved for former players and managers. Uh, so at that time, went and I studied everything I could about Coach Knight. I would take days off of school, drive to Bloomington, sit and watch the practices and write down literally everything. I went to every clinic I could go to. I thought at the time... And I still think to this day that he is the greatest teacher of the game. It doesn't matter about whether you agree with methods of his teaching or any of those things, but I thought he was the greatest teacher of the game of basketball and come back and decided that I was wrong about coaching. Coaching is teaching. Uh, coaching is not uh, telling kids what to do, suggestions. They're not running offenses and defenses. Coaching is teaching. And at that point, I kind of decided that I had to become a, I had to become a teacher. So the next couple of years, we become a 500 team. We won 10 ball, game, ball games the next two years. And we had kids that were great kids. I can honestly say, had it not been for my Jewett Sio experience and the fact that I learned that I was not a good teacher, that we wouldn't be sitting here today. But Coach, you spent four years at Jewett Sio before taking over a Morgan program that was 19 and 86 in the five years prior. Uh, 
in the four years you were at Morgan, you had a record of 43 and 42, if I'm correct, also playing in the Muskingum Valley League, which at that point, uh, it still is today, a very tough basketball league. But you were going up against the likes of West Muskingum, Tri-Valley, and John Glenn. So I guess the first question I have for you is, you kind of started to get the ball rolling at Jewett Sayo, and then you decided to take on another rebuild at Morgan. Kind of maybe take us through that decision. And then as you were doing this rebuild at Morgan, what did you do differently there that you didn't do at Jewett Sayo? You know, the thing about the Morgan situation, I was very uh, familiar with the Muskingum Valley League. I played in it at Riverview very familiar with that league, and I, and I had great passion for the league and great respect for the league, uh, the coaches in that league, the schools in that league. So the opportunity to uh, go to Morgan, even though it was a uh, very much a build, rebuild situation, but they did have good facilities. Um, they had an administration that I felt comfortable with. They knew me as a uh, former player at uh, Riverview, and – they had some things that I thought were important. They had good other athletics. And I think that's important when you start looking at it. They had had good football there. And uh, as I found out through my career, if you have a sport or other sports that are good, then they'll support it. And there's a reason to believe that you can get the basketball program or another sport going in the right direction. So, you know, I took on that uh, venture. Uh, my wife was supportive. It also got me back into a league that I was, I want to say, more familiar with in the sense that I had played in it. I, I didn't know it, but here when we were talking here a while back, I found out that, you know, Adam, that you are actually the second best basketball player in your family because I actually coached against Adam's brother when he was at John Glenn, who was an outstanding player. Uh, so I have to make sure that the, the listeners know that Adam is only the second best player in his family because Jerry was a tremendous player at John Glenn. But, you know, during our time there, you know, we were fortunate that we had some good young kids coming through the program. We had an incoming freshman class uh, that was passionate about basketball. And it took us a couple of years again uh, we struggled the first year. I think we won five games. And then the next couple of years, I think we won maybe nine or 10 and then went 13. And then, you know, our fourth year there, we actually competed with John Glenn uh, for the league championship. They put a pretty good whipping on us the second time around, but we finished second in the league at that point. And having come from a point, you know, five years before they had won or averaged four wins a year to being 16 and six and finished and second in the league. It was an exciting time, and it was probably the thing that we, or I think I, I uh, did the best at going from Jewett to Morgan, was understanding that I had to teach kids. We had kids that bought into our system because I think we was able to present things better at Morgan than we were or did at Jewett So I thought that, that the transition the learning curve happened a little bit quicker at uh, Morgan than maybe it did at Jutsaya, but that was not because of players or because of a kid's lack of effort. It was just a fact that I think we, we learned from our mistakes as coaches uh, and we did a better job of presenting stuff and giving them a better opportunity at that time. So, Coach, um, 
due to your success at Morgan and, and your ability to turn that program around, you were given an opportunity. And in talking to you, um, this this opportunity was the job for you. This is where you were going to raise your family. You had done your research. Um, you decided to go to Wheelersburg. And as coaches, uh, right, sometimes we get these opportunities, these once in a lifetime opportunities, these these opportunities where this is this is where we see ourselves for the rest of our career. And so you had that when you went to Wheelersburg. And I guess for our listeners, what made that a great opportunity for Tom Barrick? What made that a destination job? Well, you know, there, a lot of things fell in place for the Wheelersburg job. You know, I'm going to be honest. They had a couple of great coaches prior to my arrival at Wheelersburg, and they had established a uh, winning culture there. And, you know, John Eaton uh, took the 82 um, Pirates uh, to the Final Four. Mike Lovenguth, who I took over for, uh, took two teams uh, to the Final Four in 84, who they lost uh, uh, Akron St. Vincent, St. Mary's uh, that year. Uh, and then took a team back in 89. Uh, but a lot of things happened. Uh, the, the story kind of behind the story was the fact that the superintendent from Fort Fry High School actually took the, uh, or I should say the principal at Fort Fry High School actually took the superintendent's job at uh, Wheelersburg in, earlier in that summer. And of course, he knew of our success at Morgan. Uh, kind of gives me an opportunity to get in. There, uh, the position was late being filled. I had applied, having known the the past success that Wheelersburg had, uh, great school academically, uh, so that was important. We had two children. Our first was going into kindergarten, so it was a struggle early because we were actually moving uh, and trying to attend school and. Uh, it was just one of those jobs where everything kind of fell into place. Uh, legendary Gene Ford was friends with the um, actually the school board's president's uh, husband. And he had called, and I'm pretty sure Gene put a pretty good word in for me. Uh, at that time, I had competed. We had competed against Cambridge when Gina was actually there when I was at Morgan. So everything could just kind of fell into place and it just felt right. I'll be honest with you. My wife was really the one that made it work at Wheelersburg, especially early on uh, with two kids there. But, you know, we had some great kids coming through the program. There was an established culture. And that's the thing that as I went on longer and longer in the coaching profession, it's the culture that makes the difference. Everybody wants to say it's players, it's winners, it's this, it's that. It's the culture uh, that I think really makes jobs better or worse. And your ability to develop a culture there is what really makes it. So, you know, we had, and, and it was fortunate, we had some kids coming back off of a team that had had some success under Mike. And we had a, a sophomore group that we had no idea how really talented they were, uh, but they ended up uh, being very talented, probably a year or two ahead of where we thought they were, where should have been probably as sophomores. So uh, we were able to come in and, and have some success early in the program. Well, coach, let's let's jump right into that success you had early because I don't know how many coaches can say that in their first year as a head coach of a new program, they had the opportunity to play for a state title. 
you're one of those coaches that can say that. And you started out two and two, though. And if I'm not mistaken, you, your players came in late as well because your football had an incredible run. So I really want to talk about that first season um, and, and that experience. And um, when, when you got to the state finals, kind of talk to us about that as well, because I know you coached against a couple legendary coaches in the finals. Yes. Uh, you know, going back to, you know, the whole scenario, you know, our football team, and we've had historically a great football program here at Wheelersburg. Our football team actually was in the Final Four, won the region, was in the state semifinals. And we actually were playing in a tip-off tournament. Uh, they actually got beat on a Saturday, and we actually played on the following Saturday. Uh, so we've got our kids. And, and at the time, as I alluded to, we didn't realize – we didn't play any of our football kids in that first game, and we did not realize – our sophomores, how talented our sophomores were. So we played them and we actually won uh, the game with a bunch of sophomores that weekend. But we started off uh, two and two. We actually won our first two games. We went to the uh, team that had beat us in the tournament the year before, the league favorites, uh, arch rival. We had lost in a double overtime game on their floor and then come back and played a team with an outstanding singer. Uh, and he actually uh, lit us up. We lost uh, that game, and we were two and two after four games. And one of the challenges of being in a football, a predominantly very talented football school, is the fact that you have to really kind of um, just accept that there's going to be some bumps early in the year. Um, and that's kind of what happened. We went into our fifth game. We were behind 11 points going into the fourth quarter and actually turned that around and won that game and actually uh, got on a, a decent little run there. But our philosophy uh, while at Wheelersburg was that we would play the game and try to survive till Christmas time. And at Christmas time, we would try to get better. Uh, that was the whole premise behind knowing that we were only going to have a week, two weeks at the most, to practice with our kids because the majority of our kids uh, – played a fall sport. That was one of the things that, you know, I was very fortunate with. Our kids participated in fall sports, but we had good athletes. And that was the thing about, you know, when you have kids playing and winning regional titles in football, and then you get the football players in there, uh, you know that you're, you got good athletes. Uh, they may not have good basketball skills right then, but they're going to come along and they're going to develop some, some better skills. And that's really what happened that year. We ended up uh, playing the team that beat us in double overtime uh, a second time in the league. And they just, they beat our hind dids pretty good. Uh, put a pr pretty good whipping in us, on us. Uh, that was the only other game that we actually lost during the regular season. And the funny part about it is, uh, we go into the tournament. We have a decent record going into the tournament. And as as I've always said, you got to be good. You got to be lucky. We you know we were getting beat by a team that we had uh, beat uh, twice during the regular season in the districts, and we're down eleven points at halftime. And we end up making some adjustments. Our kids really rose to the occasion. We had a shot at the buzzer to get us to overtime. Uh, in the district semifinals, and we went in overtime. Could have very easily ended right there had we not made that shot uh, at, at the end of uh, regulation. But we go on to actually end up playing the league champions, our arch rivals, league champions in the regional finals. And uh, we had played two games where 
we knew that uh, both games had been up-tempo games and games where after losing twice to them, we just basically said we can't win a game uh, in an up-tempo game against these guys that are better up and down the floor than we are. Uh, we actually were able to keep it in a low-scoring game. We actually come back and beat them. Uh, in the regional finals, 54 to 52, put us into the into the final four. You know, it was one of those deals where it's hard to beat a team uh, three times, even though had they had uh, really beat us handedly the second time around. Uh, but it was one of those scenarios where we had great uh, kids. We ended up by the end of the season. The funny part about it, we were starting two seniors and three sophomores uh, by the end of the season. Was going to Columbus. Um, and it was an opportunity, you know, I was 32 years old. Of course, I didn't really understand the significance of, of, you know, going to the final four, the opportunity. There had been so many great coaches that hadn't had this opportunity. You know, you're kind of starstruck a little bit. Uh, we are matched up against one of the great players at that time, uh, in Columbus Bishop Hartley. There wasn't a lot of rankings at that time, but the number one ranked sophomore in America at the time was Esteban Weaver. Uh, he was a sophomore for Hartley, and we had to end up playing them in the state semifinals. Uh, we played probably one of our best games of the year. Uh, that game, we made shots. We were good defensively. Unfortunately, we expelled a lot of energy in that game. Uh, and as you know, Adam alluded to on the other side of the bracket was two outstanding programs. One in Ontario, who was a guest on the podcast earlier, Joe uh, Bellog, uh, who is a Hall of Fame coach himself, was matched up against Steve Smith, one of the great coaches, again, another Hall of Famer in, in the other side of the bracket. And they just slugged it out in an overtime game. Uh, in their semifinals, where we were able to win in a in a what a lot of people would consider an upset, uh, you know, having been a you know Columbus school, a uh, private school that had one of the best players in the nation at the time, and for us to be able to come in there, uh, you know, having not even won our league that year, being able to come in there, so it was kind of a surprise for us to be there to begin with, then a surprise that we were able to uh, play as well as what we did. But our, that's one thing that I found about the Wheelersburg kids, and I alluded to the culture. Our kids believed that we had a chance to beat anybody if we played well enough. That's the belief. That's the culture that's there. And they knew that if we didn't play well, we weren't going to win. But they honestly believed that if we played well, we would have a chance to win, and we did. Then we got to a, uh, a state finals uh, where – you know, Orville, uh, Steve Smith had one of the great programs, one of the great runs. Uh, what a hard-nosed coach. What a great coach he was. And he had a program that really mirrored what he was. He was a blue-collar, former Army, no-nonsense guy that had his kids believing in the same thing. And we run into a buzzsaw that day. Uh, we, we truly did. And... Uh, you know, one of the things that I probably regret uh, is the fact that we come home, we played on a Thursday and we actually come home on a Friday uh, with the intent that we didn't play until a two o'clock game on uh, Saturday, that we would try to be able to uh, get our kids into a routine, have them sleep in their own beds, 
get up. In hindsight, it's probably one of uh, the decisions that I wish I had to do again because the atmosphere at school the next day was crazy. You know, having won a game that a lot of people didn't give you a chance to win was all about yesterday's game instead of tomorrow's game. And as a coach, I probably uh, will admit I didn't, I wasn't able to. Uh, I knew I had to get them grounded, but I wasn't as a coach able to get them grounded. And we were physically spent having played against such a, a great team in the semifinals. Got there, we couldn't get things going, and we were not as good as we could have been physically, prepared-wise, and so forth. So uh, we lost that um, game, but it doesn't take away from the experience we had with our kids. The opportunity to, to play for a state championship, when you know that there's not going to be practice on Monday, win or lose, uh, it's kind of a unique feeling. So, Coach, you kind of you talked about that competitive spirit that your teams at Wheelersburg had just trying to show up every single night with that expectation we're going to compete, we're going to compete to win. So your, your program is built on that. Let's fast forward about another dozen years. You're fortunate enough to, to lead two teams back-to-back, state Final Four in 2006 and 2007. So looking back, reflecting on all three of these, these state Final Four teams who we've spoken about here, what did they have in common? What were some tributes that, you know, even though 12, 13 years apart, what did those teams have that maybe set them apart from your typical high school team that you led? You know, obviously they were good athletes and good basketball players, but besides just that, there was really two things I really believed set them apart. Number one, they were great competitors. You you can't, as a coach, you can't tell kids to compete enough. I think coaches are always trying to get kids to compete at a higher level. This is something that I we didn't have to do. You know, we were constantly doing that, but they were doing that on their own. I mean, they were challenging themselves. Yeah, there was tempers fly. <laughs> You know, there was tempers fly in practice. There was kids that didn't like, uh, you know, the talk, the elbow, the shove, the, the push, uh, the very physical uh, drills, those things. But the competitiveness uh, is something that I think really, really set those guys apart. And the other thing was, and I don't want to use the word arrogance, but I would use the word confidence that those teams had players that truly believed that they could make a play at any time. And that comes from hard work. And, you know, that just doesn't come because, you know, little Johnny thinks that he can make the game winner. That doesn't just happen. You know, there's a lot of kids that will say, Coach, man, give me a last shot. I can make it. But those teams had players that knew they were going to make. And I alluded to the shot at the buzzer in the district semifinals the year that we we played for the state championship, you know, there was no question in his mind that he was making that, you know, and we've had great players like that. You know, I have a player that didn't get to, you know, the final four that he would take, you know, and, and I actually had an opportunity to, to visit with him. And he's a uh, businessman in Raleigh, North Carolina, I had a chance to visit with him this summer. And I said, you know, I said, uh, Juice, you was one of the guys that uh, would miss five game winners in a row. But when it come to that sixth game winner, you were not giving it up. You were taking that. And he was very confident to remind me that he would have never missed five game winners in a row. That was the kind of 
players and mentalities these guys had. You know, and those two things I think really kind of stood out in those groups. Their competitiveness was off the charts and their belief that they could make any play at any time. And, you know, let's be honest, uh, I thought 06 was probably, we thought was probably a year where we was a, a year away, uh, but we had a great, a great senior leadership uh, from Nick Carrington was our point guard that year. He was the only kid that we actually lost off that kid team. And he literally willed us. He actually made two foul shots in the regional championship game to ice the game for us in 06. And, you know, and then in 07, when we went back, we felt that we had a good opportunity, you know, on the other side of the bracket. This freshman by the name of Aaron Kraft from Liberty Penn was on the other side. We thought that we played, actually played North College Hill. And uh, we, Drew Spradlin, had to make two foul shots uh, to get us to overtime um, or in overtime to get it tied. We actually made a, a, a probably a 26-footer uh, three to get us to overtime, you know, and, and there was no question he, uh, this young man, Aaron Coe, or Seth Coe, elevated from about 26 feet. He wasn't giving up, and he knew that he was making it uh, to get it to overtime. Unfortunately, they had the ball in 06 and hit a, you know, a running 40-footer or 35-footer at the buzzer to beat us in overtime by three. But I would say their coach probably would have said the same thing about uh, the Butler young man that he had that belief that it come down to one play that he was going to make it. And I think those are the things that set those teams, those special teams apart. They have great competitors and they have kids that believe because they put in the work. Uh, it's not just talking. They believe because they put in the work that they're going to make those plays. So coach, you know, we, we have one thing in common outside of, you know, just our haircuts. And that is, um, we both have stepped away from the game of basketball a couple times. Now, granted, mine was for two weeks and two months. You actually took a little bit longer time off. But we eventually found our way back, and, and you did that. You stepped down in 2013 from Wheelersburg, came back in 2015 at Eastern Pike, and had a nice four-year run there. Uh, but, but my question for you is, um, this summer you had said something to me about your experience at Eastern Pike, that it had really opened your eyes to the demands that are now placed on a head coach compared to when you first started back back at Jewett Sio and, and and going through there and then Morgan and Wheelersburg. And I was wondering if you could speak to that comment a little bit. Well, I, I know what you're referring to. And, you know, when I went back in 15 to Eastern Pike again, uh, they had we had some great kids that bought in. They were good basketball players. They were even better kids. You know the thing that at that time I went back to teaching as a part time. I was doing some tutoring. I was doing some subbing. I wasn't a full time teacher at the time, and I really got my eyes kind of opened to the demands of the social media, to the demands uh, that these young coaches this generation. And, you know, let's be honest, I'm an old guy and I'm sitting on a podcast uh, with two younger people. If anything was even remotely close to this back when I was starting, it was a uh, taped with the old cassette uh, for a radio interview with the old cassette. 
Uh, so I think that's one of the things that is a great demand on, on coaches today is the demands for social media. I think that the, the dynamics of coaching has changed so much um, in the sense that we as educators, our job is to teach kids to teach. We teach six, seven, eight hours a day, spend hours prepping after school because that's our job. So many people outside of the education field, whether it be an AAU club director, whether it be somebody else that has a flexible schedule, spends those six, seven, eight hours preparing social media, preparing promotional videos, preparing things that uh, help market their program. And marketing is a huge thing. That's what we're trying to do right here is market the Ohio Basketball Coaches Association and our brand. And marketing in today's high school sports scene is a demand. Uh, it's something that is so much more involved than anything that I had coming up as a younger coach. And Adam will attest to the fact that uh, I sometimes struggle with some of the uh, social media things being an older guy, uh, but it's part of the it's part of the coaching world now. It, it's part of it. It's the huddle. It's being able to do highlight tapes. It's being able to market not just your program, but your players within your program to keep your program and to keep your kids at the same level as everybody else. It's no longer just an X and O profession. There's so many things additional uh, going into that. Uh, and that was one of the things that I think is really a challenge for high school coaches is to be able to find ways to do those things and still be able to pay the bills and things of that, that you have to be a teacher. It is a challenge. And, you know, it's not it's not something that's easily done. It's a challenge. It really, truly is. Yeah, because we have the role of teacher, coach. Sometimes we're a counselor. Sometimes we're a big brother. Sometimes we're a father figure. And now, you know, you have to be a marketing major and, and market your team. But that's just the world we seem to live in. So, Coach... Recently, you and I have had a, a conversation about the goal of high school basketball and, and how that goal has changed and not necessarily for the better. And I know you've also been able to have this conversation with state leaders across the country uh, in your role as, as as former president of the National High School Basketball Coaches Association, so was hoping you could just talk a, a little bit about that and and how do we go about fixing it and, and and getting high school basketball back on the right track? Well, I'm glad you brought that topic up because you know I think that one of our greatest challenges right now in the coaching profession is the fact that people don't understand teaching. And when I say that, not just saying basketball or math, I think that we have a problem with people understanding the whole process of teaching. Teaching is starts with knowledge and then it starts with a presentation, and then understanding the sequence that has to go through. You know, you have to be able to add 
and subtract before you can multiply and divide. You know, you have to be able that whole sequence. And it's the same thing with coaching. You know, there's a process that if you don't understand teaching, then you're not you're not going to be able to teach the game. You know, let's be honest. Teaching, there's going to be some negative things happen when you teach something. Bad test score on a math test, getting, you know, your tail ripped in a basketball game, in a football game, getting benched, something. There's something negative that's going to happen. And, you know, everybody says the greatest lessons are the ones that hurt the most. And, you know, parents don't want negative they don't understand the process of teaching because there's negative involved with that. It's somewhere down the road, there's a negative involved with that. I don't think administrators do. I know that the media doesn't because the media is the first one that attacks anything that happens negatively. Coach yells and screams on the sideline, and I'm not talking excessive. You know, I've, I've done it excessive. <laughs> I've done things that I, I wish I hadn't. But I'm talking about the process of teaching. I don't think enough people understand the process of teaching. I think that's a concern. I think we have to get back to understanding and educating not just coaches, but everybody involved, parents, teachers, coaches, that, hey, there's going to be some hard knocks in teaching your kid. You know, you're going to have to let your kid fail. There's going to be opportunities or situations where things are negative that they're just going to have to work through. And that's just part of teaching. That's part of the lesson that they have to learn. And, you know, I think another thing that concerns me is the fact that I don't know if society believes in tough love anymore. You know, and I always allude this, that, you know, the greatest teams, the greatest organizations in the entire world is built off tough love. And I think that's something that we've got away from as a society. And I think that's something that we need to get back to if we're going to continue to do a service to these young people. Now, Coach, it definitely seems that having thick skin is becoming a commodity in our society today. Yeah. And, and call it a rant, call it a ramble, whatever you want. But I agree with everything you just said. I, I love it. Because we have to, the main thing, we got to keep the main thing the main thing, right? And the main thing is putting these young men and women that we're fortunate enough to have an impact on in position to be successful on the court, but even more so off the court as well. And, Most definitely. and you absolutely have had a grasp, a good grasp of that. So looking back on your career, we kind of alluded to a little bit earlier, might know the answer to this next question, but I got to ask, what's the biggest what if moment of your career? It, maybe it's a shot that did or didn't go in. Maybe it's an injury that did or didn't happen. Maybe it's a job that was on the table that we don't know about that, that you took, didn't take, whatever. Do you have that what-if moment? Is it that 94 uh, taking the kids back home so they could sleep in their beds for the state title game? You know, if I try not to play the what-if game. I, I truly do. Uh, you know, that is one thing that – I wish if I had to do over, I would have done. I would have kept them, even though we would have been in Columbus. Uh, I feel we would have been more isolated uh, and, and might have been able to ground them more uh, in what we needed to do, uh, you know, in, in preparation for that. 
but I will say that, you know, that game, uh, you know, our kids, our kids played their hearts out uh, that day. They were better than us. They played better than us. You know, I, I define success a little different than a lot of other people. I define success as closing that gap between potential and performance. You know, Don Myers, uh, when studying Don Myers, always said that if you coach for winning, he said you're going to be very unsatisfied and have an unsatisfying career because you can never win enough. Uh, and I never understood that early in my career. Uh, he said you can win a championship, but then the next year you don't win a championship then you're going to feel bad if because you didn't win uh, and then next year and next year. So as that, you know, as I went through my career, that always stuck with me. And as I am now finishing up my career, I really understand what that was all about. You know, I, I look at my potential as a coach. You know, I was uh, the son of a, a factory worker and a uh, full-time mother that had four kids under the age of six uh, and to have a uh, career and have an opportunity to impact kids. Uh, and uh, now that I look back, those kids did more for me than I ever did for them. But to have that uh, career and you say, you know, what was your potential as a shy uh, average basketball player to go on and to have impact on kids, that gap between my potential and what I actually got done as a coach is pretty small. I probably maxed out my potential uh, as, a, as a coach. So I can't look back on my career and say very many what ifs. I alluded to the fact that I was very lucky uh, growing up when I did, having parents that I did, having the tough love that I had, having the coaches, having the experience, all those things. So I don't know if there's a lot of what ifs. I know I wish I probably in the 94 would have played some uh, zone uh, that year. But uh, other than those kind of little things, I uh, I don't think there's a lot of uh, things that I would have said that I wish I could have done different. So, Coach, uh, you've had the opportunity uh, to take three teams to Columbus You've won over 500 games, uh, numerous coaching awards at the district and state level. 2015, you were inducted into the OHSBCA Hall of Fame. 2018, you were inducted into the NHSBCA Court of Honor. You've served as the president of both the OHSBCA and NHSBCA. You were the first executive director of the OHSBCA. You've had a coaching career that has spanned over 35 years. What are you most proud of? You know, that's a great question. And, and you know, you, you can, and I know it sounds foolish. And, and when you're going through the experience and the coaches are not going to say, are not going to believe it, but it's truly not about the wins and losses and those awards and all those kind of things. You know, those are, those are nice. Um, I am most proud of the kids that impacted my life. You know, I, I say, you know, we had an opportunity to impact them. Uh, I can honestly say they did more for my career uh, than I did for those those kids. Just the opportunity to, to be a coach. Uh, you know, Pete Liptrap, who I have a tremendous amount of respect for, longtime coach at Pickerington, we were sitting in a, uh, a little uh, place one time, and Pete said, all I ever wanted to do in my life was be a basketball coach. 
And that hit so hard to me. And, you know, I think back uh, just having the opportunity to be a high school basketball coach. You know, what an honor. Uh, what an opportunity, you know, all the kids, the relationships, and it's not just the relationships with the kids, the relationships with the other coaches. You know, I I do, you know, I didn't coach this year. I miss the camaraderie with the coaches. Uh, I did have, you know, an opportunity. I've talked to you a number of times, Adam, uh, you know, the Midwest Live opportunity, you know, event. But, you know, the cheerleading advisors and the ADs and the other coaches and parents from other uh, schools, all those things are the things that I feel the best about. You know, I, I feel extremely lucky to have had the career that I had. Uh, forget about the wins and losses. The wins allowed me to be a coach longer than what some other people have. And, and you know, I will tell you, I, you, you mentioned some of those things, Adam. I got an opportunity to do those because I was in the right place at the right time. There are a ton of coaches that were better basketball minds, better teachers, better influencers, better everything than me that didn't get those opportunities that I did. I got those opportunities. I was fortunate to do those things. But just the experience itself to uh, have been a high school basketball coach. Um, I, I don't think there's anything that I could have done uh, that I would have enjoyed more than what I've enjoyed being a high school basketball coach. I could have been in the business world, and I've always said if I worked as hard in the business world that I, that I did as a coach, that I probably would have been a lot wealthier at this point in my life. Uh, but I don't think I would have ever been as happy uh, and feel as good about what I've, what I've done. So coach, let's transition to a segment that we call triple threat. We're going to give you three topics and let you share your thoughts, ideas, experiences, and or suggestions with our listeners. Are you ready to go? Sure. All right. Number one, let's play out a scenario here. Your opponent has a stud player but not that great of a supporting cast. Do you take away the stud, try to limit what they can do, or do you let him or her get theirs and minimize the others? Well, I will tell you what we tried to do. Of course, it doesn't necessarily mean that it always happened, but you know, we, we as coaches sometimes take credit uh, when probably we shouldn't, but let's just go on. We usually try to, our, our thought was not so much limit their scoring, but limit their touches. Uh, if they had a great player, uh, and a lot of it depend on how they were a great player. You know, if they were a, a, a small forward who rebounded the basketball and took it off the, the boards, you know, it's hard to limit those touches. Uh, but if, you know, they're an off guard or somebody that they run plays for, you know, we would face guard. We Our whole guard, our whole philosophy on trying to eliminate a – a stud player was to try to limit their touches. And if we did give touches, we wanted them to touch the basketball where they normally wouldn't score at. If it was a post man, uh, front and back, um, you know, if it was somebody that played off the dribble, you know, we wouldn't want them to get the basketball. So in theory, it was to try to, uh, you know, I always, it always bothered me if I allowed 
their best player to beat us. I can still remember, and a perfect example of that is Dante Jackson, who is now an assistant coach, went to Xavier, had a great career at Xavier, now assistant coach at uh, Xavier. We were playing him, and uh, we were in a tie ball game at the end of the game. It was one of our Final Four teams. It was either 06 or 07. I can't remember which one. They were a great team. They got beaten in Division Two regionals. Uh, Rick Van Meter, Hall of Fame coach of ours, was coaching uh, Dante, and they're going for the last second shot. You know, uh, we hear them call out their play. We know what we're, we know their play. We're telling our kids exactly what they're going to do. Dante's going to give the the uh, ball up. He's coming off a post screen to the corner. He's either going to curl or he's going to flare. Scouting report, we got all that stuff down. So we don't run at him and we don't double him because we know what they're going to do or we feel what they're going to do. Dante holds the ball until three seconds to go. He elevates at 26 feet, never runs the play, and hits a three, and we go home with a loss. And that one bothered us in the fact that we let their best player uh, beat us. And unfortunately, we thought that we had that scouted and prepared, and that's where players make plays. And uh, so we lost to a, uh, a better player on that single play. Had he missed that uh, or had we defended that play, you know, we'd have said, oh, we, you know, we had it all. Oh, you know, we knew exactly what they were going to do. So, But our philosophy was always try to stop their best player from uh, beating us, and our philosophy was to eliminate touches or limit their touches to the basketball. So, Coach, number two, uh, go-to end-of-quarter, end-of-game offensive action. Were you a high ball screen guy? Were you a 1-4 low? Uh, would, you, would you want to run a set in that situation? What what kind of formation were you in end-of-quarter? Well, over a career, I think you, you change your philosophy a lot, but by the end of my career, I was more of a two-man game. I wanted I wanted my best two players to have the ball in their hands. Um, I say best two. You know, I wasn't always a one-four, and we, we run one-four with our best player at a time if we felt we had a matchup that could create. But I always felt that, you know, um, good coaches, and, and I always told our coaches or our players and our assistant coaches I don't want to prepare for bad teams. I want to prepare for the good teams. The good teams are going to take your first option away from you. Uh, if we had our best two players with a basketball, whether it be a screen and roll, screen and spot, uh, whether it would be we would initiate from the point to a um, you know off guard and then run a ball screen there or something there. But our action, uh, what we eventually got to is we wanted our best two players to have the basketball in those uh, winning situations, we call them winning situations. Uh, so many times that, you know, you try to run a set, you try to run a play, and, you know, you end up having three players involved or four players involved in the play. And the ball never gets to your best player or your best two players' hands because something happens prior to that because the good coaches are going to scout those plays. They're going to set on those plays. They're going to know what you're going to do. So uh, we get to the point where, we wanted our best two players, uh, however we could get those in that, whether that would be a high ball screen, whether that would be uh, you know, a screen and roll, screen and split, or slip, or something. Uh, our philosophy was our best two players. If we're going to get beat, we're going to get beat with our best two players. So, Coach, finally, um, it's two-parter. First part, t- 
toughest place to play, toughest atmosphere to play in, and then the second part would be the toughest team to game plan for. Whew. Wow. Those were, those were great questions. Uh, you know, having been in, having been in the old, old buildings, uh, I don't think people, you know, when I said that, you know, my first coaching career victory was against Perry Reese uh, in the old Jewett Sio gym. I don't know if too many people understand that gym. But that gym, my first year was without the three-point circle. Uh, yes, that's how old I am. Uh, I coached my first year. There was no three-point circle. My second year uh, is when we installed the three-point circle. Judsayo had a restraining line, and the three-point circle went out of bounds at the second hash on the foul lane. Uh, that's how narrow our uh, gym was. Uh, I would say it was one of the best uh, home court advantages you could have, though I will tell you that when I said that without my JS experience, we wouldn't be having this conversation, I wouldn't have been the coach that I had because, you know, uh, the floor, we actually had to get the ball to half court because it was so short. But for the old timers, we were actually allowed to go back to another line as the over and back line. So you guys are shaking your head like, yeah, there's there's some elementaries or some middle school gyms out there that maybe you guys uh, have experienced that. Uh, we actually played in a couple of gyms like that uh, at Oak Hill, uh, where our legendary Norm Pearson, they have had since had a new school when Norm coached there, but their old gym at Oak Hill uh, was similar like that. You know, that those those gyms are the toughest, I think. Uh, and then I, I think one of the – in our old gym at Wheelersburg, we since have had a new school belt. It was a very difficult place to, to play. Uh, it was uh, very small. We had a stage on one side. Uh, we put the band behind our visiting coaches. Uh, and then during timeouts, the band obviously would be playing. Uh, our student section – basically was on the floor, um, in the corner. Uh, it, it was a challenge. As far as the toughest teams to prepare, in general, I think the toughest teams to prepare are the transition teams, the teams that will run the ball back to you. Those were very difficult um, teams to, to prepare for uh, in general. Uh, you know, when we talk about the 95 team, that was uh, that was our problem against Menford, the team that uh, had beat us and that we ended up beating in the regional finals. We played them the double overtime game at their place uh, in game three that we lost. Later in the year, we come back and played them uh, at our place. They beat us by 18 points at our place. Uh, and it was because they ran the ball back at us. Uh, and that's the reason why we ended up winning the, the matchup in the tournament is because we were able to keep them from getting back and we made enough shots and we were able to keep the tempo at a much lower pace that they weren't able to get into it. So those things, those teams, I, I always thought in my career were very difficult to prepare for. 
Well, Coach, we have one more question for you. But before we get to that, we want to thank you for coming on the show tonight and spending some time with us here on the Holding Court Podcast. Well, thank you. Um, you know, as I said, uh, you know, at the beginning of my career, if anybody would have said I had been on some type of social media, some type of uh, podcast, I'd have said, what is a podcast? Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to be on here. As I said, you've had some great guests. You're going to have some great guests after. Uh, hopefully I was able to put a little insight uh, into things. You know, when I, when I was thinking about when I wanted to ask you here, here to wrap up, I kind of hesitated whether or not I should ask this, but I, I think it's an important question here. And, you know, usually around the time March Madness uh, begins to roll around and the brackets get released, you know, we start hearing the conversations about, the best coaches to, to never win an NCAA title. And you've had a remarkable career. You've had a Hall of Fame career, but you were unable to win that last game of the season. Uh, you knocked on the door three times, which, I mean, let's be honest, is three times more than most coaches. But does your career feel a little incomplete because you weren't able to win that state title? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, that's probably a question that no coach ever wants to be asked, you know, um, because that means that you didn't win it. But, you know, at this stage of my career, I, I openly welcome that question. I really do. Uh, in the sense that I think a, the 32 year old Tom Barrick would probably answer this a lot different than the 35, 36-year veteran uh, is going to answer this because I think I have an entirely better perspective of the coaching profession. You know, I've alluded to the fact that I define success uh, a little different than a lot of other people. And I've already kind of went through the, the thing that, you know, when you look at teams and where they're at, uh, where their potential was, you know, the teams that have the fortunate opportunity to win a state championship. They talk about the memories. They talk about this. They talk about all those things, that bond. Well, I will tell you that the bond that we had of our Final Four teams, the teams that got beat in the sectional, the bonds that we have, we still have. We may not have as many games to talk about as they did. We may not have as many wins as they have. We may not have that last victory that they talk about. But as far as the bonds, as far as the relationships, they're still there. I can honestly say that I don't feel that the career has been incomplete because when you look at the coaching profession, when you look at the real coaching profession, the coaching profession is about influence. It's about relationships. It's about impact. It's about those things. That's what the real coaching profession is. Sure, every coach would love the opportunity. I would love the opportunity to have won a state championship. We had, we knocked on the door, we didn't. But in hindsight, that nobody, uh, coaches that didn't get to the final four still have that bond, still had that opportunity to make that impact to have those relationships. So, as I said, you know, the old Coach Barrick uh, can look at this as a, 
you know, I really feel that I'm kind of at the reward stage of my career because I get to sit and I get to look at all the great things that our players have done. I got kids that are lawyers. I got kids that are running their own business. I got labor people. I got kids that are going to work every single day and raising four kids. And those relationships, you know, those relationships are not going away because we didn't win the last game. We wish we would have. Uh, but guess what? We still had great stories to talk about. So, Thanks for listening to Holding Court, presented by the Ohio High School Basketball Coaches Association. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. In the meantime, keep up with us on Twitter and Facebook at OhioBKCoaches, on Instagram at OHSBCA1947, and online at www.oh.nhsbca.org. Until next time.